chapter 6. Early on in the scriptures, if it's helpful, army, that's page 85. Army is getting used to an English Bible. We had a, we were talking about that this week. He's read the Rwandan Bible for most of his life. And so uh, he's uh, making good progress and finding his way around this strange language of ours. <laughs> well, we have been looking at the gospel in the beginning and then its work to create the church. And uh, it will be helpful for us, I think, as we start this morning, just to step back to get an overview once again of this world and what God has to say about the circumstances that we find ourselves in today. You remember we've seen in the book of Genesis that God created all things very good, but of course mankind sinned. And what was the effect of that sin? Well, sin destroyed the relationship that man had with God. And as a result, the world today is filled with violence and strife and anger and disease and cancer and war and death. The world that our good God created has gone its own way. And is it any wonder then that the world is not good today if we have departed from our good Lord? The anger, the conflict, degeneration, the fact that this world is wearing out and wearing down, we look at the aging process, all of this shows that we have turned our back upon the God of life. And is it any wonder then that the world is dying? Creation is scattered it is alienated from God, and as a result, men are alienated from each other. But as we have seen from the book of Ephesians, God's plan for the fullness of the times, a great day coming in the future, is that all things would be regathered back together under the headship of Jesus Christ. His alienated and rebelling creation would be restored to a right relationship with God through Christ. Every rebel subdued under the reign of Jesus Christ, every one of God's people enjoying the unending bliss of life in the presence of God through Christ. Creation itself, Romans 8 tells us, will be subject to the one who created it. And we look forward to that new creation wherein dwells righteousness and peace and joy. This is God's plan for the ages. But we have also seen that God has begun his work of redemption and restoration and reunification of all things. He has begun to unfold that plan when Christ rose from the dead. At the resurrection, God set Christ as head over all things, but primarily as head of the church today. And so the church is a small part, a small microcosm, a a picture, an, an image, the first installment of God's work that will complete, be complete on that great day in the future. But nevertheless, God is at work today to bring about his plan. The church, think about it, is a representative slice of all the nations. There are people from every tribe and, tribe and tongue and nation in the church today. But unlike this world that is disunified, that is filled with strife, the church is supposed to be unified. Every tribe and tongue and nation gathered together, not in discord and disharmony and strife, but in unity under Christ as head. The body consists of Jew and Gentile. 
This is God's plan for today. It is how he is glorifying himself by constructing the body of Christ. But how is God bringing about this plan? How is it moving forward today? What is God's mode of operation for the construction of the church? How is he building this people called the body of Christ? And we get an answer to that when we look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. Before we read these couple of verses here, let's think just briefly about what we've seen in our Bibles up to this point, drawing on your knowledge of the scripture at this point. After the fall of man and the curse, God appears to Abraham. He promises to him that he will make him a great nation and that he will settle his descendants in a land and pour out his blessing upon them. This is Genesis 12. His descendants, God says, before all of that comes to pass, his descendants will be strangers in a land that does not belong to them. They will go down into Egypt. But God promises to Abraham that he will bring them out with a strong arm and he will make them into a nation that will be his special possession. He says in Exodus 19, all the earth is mine, but you will be my special peculiar people. This nation would be God's people. He would be their God and they would be his people. And so God sent 10 plagues and he brought Abraham's descendants out of Egypt. He brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai. He spoke to them 10 commandments. Why did he give them 10 commandments? And the answer is in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6. Keep those commandments and do them. For that, what? They're keeping and doing them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, all the nations, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Is God primarily concerned that the nations think well of Israel? No, continue reading. Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? As Israel keeps the law of God, they appear to be a very righteous and a very wise people. And certainly they would have in that ancient world where violence and uh, unlawfulness prevailed. But all of that is supposed to reflect then on the God who gave those laws. The Ten Commandments were to form Israel into a nation that would display God's wisdom and glory to the nations. Think back with me about Adam. Adam is created in the image of God to display his likeness, his glory. Adam sins. Adam dies. Our God is an undying God. How can Adam now adequately image God? How can he represent and display his glory when he's perishing? And the answer is that God redeems a people, Israel. And he tasks them with displaying his glory to the nations. How will they do this? Ten commandments. Keep them. It will show that God is wise. It will show that God is righteous. It will display something of God in the world. And so Israel would have displayed to the nations the wisdom of God if only they would have kept his laws. 
But instead of obeying, Israel rebelled just as Adam did. And just as God drove Adam out of the garden and his presence because of his sin, so God drives Israel out of the land because of their sin. And now today they wander the face of the earth. The nation of Israel has died for the present time. What God called together and formed by those Ten Commandments has now fallen apart. God's project to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord that began with Adam and God's image in him, that continued with God's giving Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel, all of that seems to have come to a dead end. And how is God's gonna, God going to display his wisdom and his righteousness to the nations today? How is he going to display his glory in the earth today? Well, God's intention for Israel was not complete when they went into captivity. He intends to regather them. Israel will exist once again as a nation before God amongst all the nations of the earth. And for what purpose will God regather them? Why does God intend to reignite the spark of this nation in the future? And the answer is, he will recreate that nation for the same reason that he created them in the first place. To display his glory, to show forth his wisdom, to, de to demonstrate his power. And we know this will happen because of what Ezekiel 36 says. Let's turn there and read a passage of scripture and examine it for just a moment. Page 422, Ezekiel 36, page 422. And we'll begin reading with verse 22. So this passage is written after Judah has gone into exile, after the glory of God has departed from the temple, after the nation of Israel has come to an end at the hands of the Babylonians. Therefore, verse 22, Ezekiel 36, 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. You can see Israel was supposed to glorify God's name amongst the nations, but instead they have profaned his name. And so God says, I will act not for your sake, but for my name's sake. And how will God do this? He says, verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. How is God going to vindicate his holiness? Holiness is simply God's uniqueness. There's no one like the Lord our God in all of the earth or all the heavens. How will God show that he's unlike any other God? How will he vindicate his holiness? And the answer is this. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. What nation could do that? Oh, sorry, what, what God could do that to regather a people like this? I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. 
Israel has trampled upon the glory of God by her sin. God has responded by driving her out of the land. But God's plan, according to this passage, is to regather them, to cause them to walk in His ways. And He promises to put His Spirit within them to cause this to happen. That was the problem from the beginning with ancient Israel. They did not walk in the ways of God. They did not keep the commandments. God gave them His laws, but they disregarded them. Now God promises to not only give them His laws, but to give them His Spirit also, to enable them to walk in successful obedience to His laws. God intends to regather Abraham's descendants, to reform them as a nation. He intends to redeem them, to recreate Israel, to display His glory and His wisdom once again to the nations. Here's the question. How will God regather them? How will He recreate this dead nation? How will He bring them together and cause them to live again? How will He call the nation of Israel out of the grave with such recreative force? And in asking those questions, we're actually asking questions also about the church in this age. And the reason for that is this. What God says He will do for Israel in this passage Hebrews 8 says he's doing it today for all the Gentiles too. He's put his spirit within us. And what is, the, what, is, what is the outcome of that? He is gathering people from all of the nations together by the placing of his spirit within them. We've seen this. So however God is going to do this for Israel, that's how he's doing it today for the church also. So how is God creating this body, the church? How is he going to recreate Israel in the future? How is God going to bring this about? And the answer is in in the next chapter, Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. In other words, these are not buried corpses. These apparently have fallen in war or something or some, some great catastrophe. And all these corpses have rotted in this valley. They have not even been buried. Something dramatic has happened here. Behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. This took place a while ago that, they, that the life passed out of these skeletons. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Oh, Lord God, you know. And he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound. Behold, a rattling, of the rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, 
Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we indeed are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. How is God going to regather Israel? Israel is only one small slice of God's great plan for the ages, as we've seen in Ephesians 1. By what power will God regather all creation? Under the headship of Christ. And we've seen that he's begun that work today. By what power will God form the church and call it to life and gather in people from every nation into one body? And the answer is in verses 4 through 7 of Ezekiel 37 that we just read. The prophet is commanded to prophesy. God fills his mouth with words and the prophet speaks God's words over this vast graveyard of scattered bones. The prophet declares God's plan for these bones. He declares that breath will enter into them and they will live. The prophet declares that sinews will form and flesh will stretch out to cover the body and these dead bones will live again. This is God's word and Ezekiel proclaims it. And what happens? Exactly as God says. The word of God proclaimed brought about the very effect that it called for. Prophesy and say, you shall rise again. And the very act of prophesying is what caused the resurrection. This is a pattern that we see throughout the Bible. God's words produce the very effect that they call for. Think of Genesis 1. In the beginning, nothing exists. God calls for the light. And the light begins to shine at the word of God. He calls forth the light by his word. And the very, ef the, the very effect that God's words call forth, they produce. It wasn't that God called for the light and then he made it happen. His words produced the effect that they called forth. God calls the birds to fly and suddenly be birds begin to flit and flutter about. The bare word of God brings to pass exactly what it calls for. We see this pattern here in Ezekiel 37. We see this pattern as Jesus stands before the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus come forth and his words produce the effect they call for and the man comes out of the tomb. By the proclamation of God's words, the bones will be regathered and come to live again. How will Israel be regathered? How will the church be formed? What will create the body? And the answer that Ezekiel 37 gives us is proclamation of God's words preaching. And this pattern is the means whereby dead sinners like ourselves have come to new life also. Let's look at the New Testament book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, page 588. 588, 1 Peter 1. How do dead sinners come to live again? 1 Peter 1, verse 23. You have been born again, 
That's what we want to know. How did we come to new life? You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Through the living and abiding word of God. The word of God is how we come to new life. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. It's not simply the word in the book. It's the word proclaimed. This good news was preached to you and you have been born again by this imperishable seed. The word of God that was proclaimed to you. This is how God works. He issues his word and his word comes to pass just as he said. We ought to pause and just think about Ezekiel 37 now. How did the bones come together and the, 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 the skeletons live again? It wasn't simply through the reading of the word of God. It wasn't that the words were written down and Ezekiel was commanded to read them over the bones. The scripture does not say, how then shall they hear and believe and be saved without Bibles? It says, how then shall they hear and believe and be saved without a preacher? By the preaching of the word, the dead are raised. And by that very structure, we understand, come to understand something about God's words. God's words spoken through the faltering and failing human voice. There's no reason that we should think that the mere words of a man are what have called forth the dead and raised up and given new life to sinners. Instead, we must understand something about the character of the words that the man speaks. He must speak the word of God if this is to be the case. He must say what God has said in the book. And Paul makes exactly this point for us in Ephesians chapter 3. Turning to a lot of passages here, just so you can see that this is a theme through the entire Bible. Ephesians 3, page 568. And we'll begin reading in Ephesians 3 with verse 3. Paul says, the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. In other words, the mystery that he's spoken of and he's written of briefly in chapter 2. He says, that mystery was made known to me by God's revelation. And I've written to you briefly about it. Verse 4, when you read this, chapter 2, when you read what Paul says about the mystery which God has revealed to him, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What is the mystery? This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay, so we've looked at this from Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3. God's plan for the fullness of the times is to unite all things in Christ. And he's doing that today by uniting Jew and Gentile and every nation into one body under the headship of Jesus Christ in unity. This is what chapter 2 is all about. The question is, how is all this coming about today? The creation of this body, the unifying of Jew and Gentile. Let's look at verse 7 of this gospel. I was made a minister by the gift of God's grace. 
God graciously bestowed upon me his gracious gift of apostleship, Paul says. And why did God make him a minister of this gospel? He made him a minister of this gospel so that I should preach to the Gentiles the riches of Christ. God revealed this mystery to Paul with a goal in view. God's goal for Paul in showing him these things was that he might proclaim what had been for so long hidden. He would preach these things. And God's plan was that he would proclaim all that God had done so that Gentiles would be gathered into the body of Christ. To me, this grace was given, verse 8, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The path forward was preaching. By preaching, God would call dead Gentiles to life and add them to Christ's body and make them heirs of the blessing God promised to Abraham. Through preaching, the church, the body of Christ, would spring to life. God would create the body of Christ through preaching. And what was the result of this preaching? Well, it creates a people in the book of Ephesians, just like Israel. And what effect comes about through this people? Look with me at verse 10. Paul preaches, verse 9, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that, why does Paul preach? Why is it that this plan ought to be revealed? It is so that through the church, which is created through the proclamation of the word, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. For what purpose did God create Israel? To display his wisdom to the nations. He creates them by giving them the Ten Commandments. For what purpose does God create the church? It is so that his wisdom might be put on display. So how important is preaching in the life of the church? The answer is, it is the life of the church. Man does not live by bread only, but by the word of God. Man lives, he comes to new life. The body of Christ grows through the proclamation of the word of God. So should we focus primarily as Christians on sending out cases of Bibles? Or should we send out preachers? How then shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a Bible? How shall they hear without a preacher, Paul says. It is by the preaching of the word that the bones come together, the sinews form, the skin wraps around, and the body comes to life. Preaching is vital to the life of the church. And by his word, God is creating a body for his son. The church exists by the preaching of the word of God. Take away the preaching of the gospel and the progress of God's plan in this age to create a body, a bride, a people for his son. Take away preaching and that grinds to a halt, according to Paul in Romans 10. But in God's sovereign plan, the preaching of God's word brings to life the body of Christ. But preaching of God's word not only creates the body, it also matures the body. 
And let's turn to Colossians chapter 1, just over a couple of pages from where you're at in Ephesians 3, and we'll be here pretty much for the rest of the time this morning. God's Word proclaimed creates the body. God's Word proclaimed matures the body. Colossians 1, verse 28, page 572. Colossians 1, verse 28, Paul says, Him we proclaim. Who? Verse 27, Christ. We proclaim Christ, Paul says, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why proclaim Christ? For this goal, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We want to notice two things about this verse. First of all, let's look at Paul's goal. Paul's goal is given to us in the second half of the verse, beginning with the word that, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. This is Paul's goal. This is what he spends his life trying to achieve. This is what gets him up out of bed in the morning. This is what he labors to accomplish. Paul has in view here that great day when we stand before Christ's throne. And his goal is that on that day, he might be able to present those to whom he has ministered, to present them to Christ in this condition, mature. The King James Version says, perfect. That is a very strong word. There's very few imperfections in the word perfect. Does Paul really mean perfect? Does he think that his goal is to achieve that for every man? The word perfect in verse 28 is actually defined for us in verse 21. And before we read that, let's just think for a second about what question verse 21 is going to answer for us. You can go back and read verses 19 through 20 and you'll find out that the question that Paul wants to answer in verse 21 is this. Why did God send Jesus Christ in flesh to die? What was his purpose in sending his son to this earth in flesh to die? What did that accomplish? And there's many answers to that question. The answer that Paul gives us in verse 21 is this. God sent Jesus Christ in flesh to die so that you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Why did God send Christ in flesh to die? To reconcile you in order to present you, it's the same word as verse 28, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What does it mean in verse 28? To present every man perfect. It means what Paul talks about here in verse 22. In other words, God sent Christ in flesh to die with a goal in view. That man might stand before his throne holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. And to see to the fulfillment of that mission, look at the end of verse 23. Of which I, Paul, became a minister. God has a goal in view. He makes Paul his minister to bring it about. And so verse 28, Paul labors for that same goal, to present everyone mature in Christ Jesus. And that means the word perfect or mature in verse 28 is actually shorthand for those three words in verse 22. Holy and blameless and above reproach. Are you there yet? Holy, 
blameless, above reproach. In one sense, you are. In Christ Jesus, you are justified. But in another sense, we got a long ways to go, don't we? That's why Paul labors. He labors to make up that difference so that on that day, men stand before God's throne perfect. Paul's labors actually contribute to seeing that goal fulfilled. So this is Paul's goal, and it's comprehensive. Look at verse 28. We preach Christ warning every man, everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ on that day. Now I want to point out something now as we just transition to looking at the first part of the verse, which gives us Paul's method. What does he do day by day to achieve this goal? The first part of the verse is going to give us that method, but we need to note that if Paul's goal is to present every man mature or perfect in Christ Jesus, then whatever his method of obtaining that goal is, his method has got to be sufficient for every man. It's got to be the cure-all. Human beings are not perfect. We're far from it. On that day, Paul hopes to present every man perfect. How's he going to get there? He employs one method for every man, and that means this method has got to cure every imperfection and move every man towards the fulfillment of that goal. So what's wrong with the world today? What's wrong with kids? What's wrong with you? Where are the imperfections? If Paul were here, and his desire was to see you perfect on that day, what would he do day by day to move you forward towards that goal? What would be his method, his mode of operation? And the answer is given to us in the first part of the verse. We preach Christ, Paul says, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Here in three words, we have Paul's method. We preach Christ. Proclamation of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to preach Christ? I'm sorry, I told you we'd be here for a while. Keep a bookmark here. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, page 555. What does it mean to preach Christ? And then we will come back to Colossians and try to understand what does this mean for people who are not called of God to preach? day in and day out. What does it mean for the non-preachers? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 is the best passage I know on what it means to preach Christ. And Paul says here, he says this, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Do you see what Paul's saying? This is an astounding passage. Paul says in verse 1, he says, When I came to you to preach... I didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom. That's surprising to us. Because Paul is preaching to a 
Gentile, specifically a Greek audience. Corinthians are on the peninsula with Greece. Paul says, when I came to you, I didn't come with wise and excellent speech. Now, we still study the Greeks today to learn about speech. If you take a speech course in just about any university, they will take you back and they will study rhetoric that the Greeks developed. The Greeks had mastered the ability to use the spoken word to persuade men, to turn them to your point of view. And Paul, going into a culture like that, it would only have made sense for him to stop at the local school of rhetoric on his way into town to learn how he could use wise words to persuade the crowd for Christ. And yet Paul says, when I came to you, I did not come with lofty speech or wise words. Why was that? Just because Paul didn't take the opportunity to learn how to do it? No, it was actually a deliberate choice on his part to do it that way. Look at verse 2. I decided to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I mean, why did Paul conclude that his ministry would proceed along this course? He says, I'm coming to preach Christ to you, which if you look in the previous chapter, Chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says, I already knew the reception I would get. If I came to Greeks and I preached Christ, I know what the Greeks will think about that. They will consider the preaching of the Messiah foolishness. Imagine that, a public speaker hoping to persuade the crowd, picking a topic he knows they will think is foolish and proclaiming it to them. Paul, what hope do you have any success in your ministry if you do it that way? And Paul's answer is, that's the way it's supposed to be. No hope of success apart from one thing. He says, I did it this way. My speech, verse 4, and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Instead, they were a demonstration of the Spirit and His power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If Paul uses wise words to persuade the crowd... What is the foundation for their faith? Paul's wise words. And how long is that going to last? Until the first persecution comes along. But if Paul preaches Christ, foolishness, and people respond, how do you explain that? Only one thing. The Spirit of God went to work. And if that faith in them is wrought of the Spirit of God, how long will it last? It will demonstrate God's power, and their faith will not rest in the wise words of men. It will rest in the power of God. And so Paul says, preaching Christ was a deliberate choice that I do it this way. And yet we might say to Paul, so what do you say to people, Paul? I get it that you're preaching Christ and Him crucified, but, but what does that look like? What words come out of your mouth? If it's not these kind of words, what words do you speak? Just listen to John 5.39. You search the Scriptures, Christ says, because you think you have in them eternal life, and it is they who testify of me. The Scriptures bear witness of me, Paul says. Or Christ says, Luke 24.27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Christ interpreted to those two on the road to Emmaus in all the Scriptures. That would be the Old Testament Scriptures. He interprets in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself, we preach Christ. In all the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, the things concerning Christ. What does it mean to preach Christ? It means to preach the Word of God. But 
It means to preach the word of God as a window through which we look not to see the window pane, the stained glass, the frame, the screen, the latch. It means to preach Christ through the scripture as a, the scripture as a window through which we look to see Christ. In other words, the Old Testament scriptures are not about Noah. They're not about Abraham. They're not about David. They're not about Israel. The New Testament is not about Peter and Paul. The whole thing is about Christ. And preaching Christ means preaching the scriptures so that people don't get stuck looking at the text, but that they see Christ unveiled in the scriptures. Beyond the sacred page, I seek thee, Lord. My spirit pants for thee, O living word. So how do you know if a preacher is actually preaching Christ? The answer is when he gets done, do you see Christ? Or do you merely see a passage of scripture and words on a page? This was Paul's method. So can you see him going into Corinth? What's he take with him when he goes into Colossae? He takes his dusty Hebrew manuscript of the prophet Isaiah and he unrolls it and he begins to proclaim the prophesied Messiah. He tells the crowd that he's come. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. He's been born crucified, buried, risen again, ascended to the Father's right hand, and that he is coming to judge the world in righteousness. And this is the message that turned the world upside down. This is the cure-all. This is what it means to preach Christ. Employ this method for every man, and every man will stand perfect before Christ on that day. We preach Christ that we may present every man perfect. This is the power of the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Preaching matures the body of Christ. It brings them ever closer, week by week, to that day when they stand before him perfect. And back to Colossians 1, there are two components of what it means to preach Christ. We understand Christ now. What does it mean to preach him? And there's two components. One of them is warning, and one of them is teaching, and we're supposed to do it in all wisdom. Now, if you look, we've already looked at Colossians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. If you look at just the previous verse, 1 Corinthians 1.30, you'll find out what Paul means by we preach Christ in all wisdom. Warning and teaching in all wisdom. He says that Christ has become our wisdom from God. So what does it mean to warn and teach in all wisdom? It simply means to warn and teach with Christ Jesus as your subject matter. He is the wisdom that we have from God. So components of preaching, warning, teaching, in all wisdom. Okay, that's the wisdom that comes to us through Jesus Christ. So, what does this mean for you? You're not a preacher. You don't stand in a pulpit. You don't take Paul's place. In the book of Colossians, there are four things that this means for you. If this is the goal, this is the method, then that means four things for you. Just turn the page to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, verse 3. At the same time, pray for us that God may give us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. We preach Christ. Pray for an open door to declare the mystery of Christ. If this is the goal and this is the method, then pray for preachers. Pray that God would give them an open door to declare the mystery of Christ. 
And that goes for preachers who preach to the lost as well as those who preach to believers. Because Paul's goal is to present everyone mature and he employs the method of declaring Christ to them to achieve that goal. So pray for preachers to declare the mystery of Christ, not their own thoughts, not even the Greek and Hebrew words in the text, but beyond the sacred page to declare Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Secondly, pray not only for preachers, but pray for those to whom they preach. Look just down the page at Colossians 4 verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, he's probably the pastor of the church in Colossae. He's traveled to Rome to encourage Paul. And while he was there, he got sick. And Paul says, while he was here in Rome, I want to tell you what he was doing. He was praying for you. What was he praying for the Colossian believers about? He says, pray. He says, Epaphras is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature. Paul preaches that they may stand mature. But evidently, Paul's preaching is not sufficient for them to stand mature on that day. If they're going to stand mature on that day, it takes preaching and prayer. The prayers of the saints for those to whom the preachers preach. Pray for each other. You might see Christ and might stand before him on that day mature. Third, flip back to Colossians 3, previous chapter. If this is the goal and this is the method, well, do you remember what it means to preach Christ? Warn, teach in all wisdom. Remember that? That's what it means to preach Christ. Okay, did you know that exact same phrase shows up somewhere else in the New Testament? Paul, what's it mean to preach Christ? Warn, teach in all wisdom. That phrase shows up somewhere else in the New Testament. It happens to show up again in Colossians. Colossians 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now, the King James punctuates this a little differently, I think, than what the Greek text indicates we should punctuate it as. The way that the Greek text reads, it's probably best to punctuate it this way. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And that means that when we ask the question, Paul, what does it mean to preach? It means to warn and teach in all wisdom, and that exact same activity is happening here, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. The question is, is there any difference? And there is two main differences. In chapter 1, Paul warns and teaches in all wisdom every man. Any person he talks to, saved or lost, he is preaching Christ to them, warning and teaching in all wisdom. Who's the audience in this passage? teaching and admonishing in all wisdom one another. Now that's not evangelism because evangelism is preaching Christ one to another. If we're warning and teaching one another, that's mutual, that goes both ways, that's two believers, that's called local church. Okay? So what's going on here, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, that's what's supposed to be happening in the local church. The question is, who's supposed to be doing that? In 128, Paul's the preacher. Who's the preacher in 316? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. You have the responsibility to do what Paul did, 
to work towards the same goal. You have the responsibility to preach Christ yourself, not from a pulpit. And that's why the word proclamation doesn't occur here like it does in 128. But the components are still there. Warning and teaching one another in all wisdom. But we'll come back to talking about that part in just a minute. But before we do, there's something that's got to be in place first. What is it? Beginning of the verse, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word about Christ, see that's what we saw. The word is about Christ. Let the word about Christ dwell in you richly. And the way that it reads in the original text is this. If it does, it will overflow. If it's not overflowing, it's not dwelling richly. So you have the responsibility to grow in Christ yourself. Why? For your own sake and for the sake of the other believers that God puts you alongside of in the church. If they stand perfect before Christ on that day, Paul's ministry, the ministry of preachers, will contribute to that. But you have a role to play as well. You are responsible for helping to achieve that goal for every person in the local church where God puts you. And when the word of Christ dwells in you richly, you will do then what Paul did. You are to strive to present every man mature in Christ. And the responsibility for the spiritual health and well-being and growth of your fellow members of Christ's body lies in your hands. It lies in the preacher's hands. It lies in Paul's hands. It lies in your hands also. Do you take that responsibility seriously? You say, I don't know what this means for me. How do I want and teach in all wisdom? How do I help someone grow in Christ? One more short passage that we'll look at. We've already looked at it once in this little series, and so I think it'll make sense to you at this point, more sense. Let's look at Ephesians 4, page 569. What does it mean to help someone grow in Christ? How can I do that? Who equips me to do that? Ephesians 4, verse 11. Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. How are we built up? How are we edified? How do we grow? Answer, shepherds and teachers equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. I think at this point, when we take Colossians 1.28 and Colossians 3.16 and put them alongside of each other, this passage makes a lot more sense. If the work of the ministry in verse 12 is mowing the grass at the church and, and working on the sound system and, and painting the Sunday school rooms, if that's the work of the ministry, shepherds and teachers don't equip you to do that. The pastor is not the best person to teach you how to paint the Sunday school rooms. But if the work of the ministry is warning and teaching one another in all wisdom, your pastor can equip you for that. He can teach you the word of Christ and you can pick it up and you can run with it to your fellow believers. And that's how the pastors, the shepherds, and the teachers equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The sermon is like the starter motor on the car. It injects the life, the content, Christ into the midst of the congregation, and then throughout the week they warn and teach one another in all wisdom. And the result is, because of the preaching of the word and because of the warning and teaching of the congregation, every man on that day, will stand perfect in Christ Jesus. We will grow up. We will attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. 
So I think there's only two blanks on your handout today for you to fill in. What will be the effect of the preaching of God's Word? First of all, it will achieve unity today. If the pastor is preaching Christ, and Christ is the center of the interactions of the body, if we're warning and teaching one another concerning Christ, there is unity in that. If the wisdom that we have to share with one another is our own viewpoints, then there will be disunity. But as we preach Christ, publicly and individually, that creates unity today. That is what gathers God's people together into one body that stays together. So unity today is the effect of preaching. But tomorrow, in the future, the effect of preaching is maturity. On that day, men and women will stand perfect before Christ because of your ministry. So how critical is preaching to the life of the church? It is vital, but preaching isn't the only thing that creates and matures the body. The word that was preached on Sunday must bounce around inside the church all week long. This isn't equipping every man to run his own ministry in the church. Instead, the pastor who teaches equips the saints so the saints can do the work of the ministry. We pick up the word as we are taught it on Sunday and we run with it into each other's lives throughout the week. We reteach, we readmonish our fellow believers with the word that we heard together on the Lord's Day and the result is that the body of Christ is built up. We arrive at maturity on that day. So what does this mean? How much disunity can creep into a church where elders preach Christ not their own personal druthers and viewpoints. If an elder is preaching his own word, there will be disunity. If the elder is preaching Christ, there will be unity. What about if people are intent on helping each other grow and mature according to the word of Christ that they all heard together on Sunday? Helping each other to grow up into Christ. There's nothing else that matters to them except following Christ and submitting themselves to Christ's word as elders teach it. How much disunity could there be in a church where Christ is the center like that? And the result is that we achieve unity and maturity. Well, let's pray. Let's see if there's any questions. Okay. Lord God, for Christ's sake, that your wisdom might be displayed to the nations in the unity of the body, we pray that ministers of the gospel all over this world would preach Christ and him crucified and nothing else. Pray, Lord, that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be the center of all Christian proclamation. That you would deliver us from legalism and antinomianism. That you would deliver us from our own personal viewpoints. I pray, Lord, that elders who teach would teach and preach Christ. And that those that you have formed together into a body by the preaching of the word, by the descent of the spirit, that they might pick up those words the words of God and run with them to each other, modeling what they look like in action, helping each other to understand, praying over them together, holding each other accountable to fulfill them, to obey them. And in this way, Lord, we pray that the body of Christ might be built up and unified and grow 
up into Christ, our head, through the ministry of every member. Every one of them is needful, Lord. You have placed them all in the body to contribute to our maturity, and we pray that you would grant us the eyes of faith to accord to each one the honor that he or she is due because the Holy Spirit has deemed them necessary and put them in the body alongside of me. We pray these things for Christ, for his sake, and in his name, amen. All right, anything that we can make clearer or any comments or any other passages of scripture you want to connect? Anything at all? We went really long again, I'm so sorry. It's like 50 minutes. <laughs> Anything at all? You look like you've got a passage there you want to share, yeah, Tyler? I was thinking, I was going to say, in um, Colossians 1, 28, where it says, uh, we represent everyone mature in Christ. And definitely a big key part of that verse is in Christ. Yes. Yep, it's not wholly blameless and above reproach is not definable by what I think that is. Christ lived the holy, the blameless, and the above reproach life. And God's spirit is given to form Christ in us. And that is what we are trying to achieve is Christ-likeness. Not me-likeness, not pastor-likeness, Christ-likeness. That's what we are striving to achieve in each other. We're not making each other into our own images. We're make, we are working to build each other into Christ's image. That includes love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and meekness and faith and patience and temperance. Sound familiar? Yes. Okay. Anything else? No? Okay. I love the energy from verse 29 there. So yes. So this struggling with all his energy. With that he's all my energy. <laughs> Yep. You know, there's one other thought I think that's helpful in that regard, and I didn't, didn't bring this out. The mission that we strive for to present every man perfect in Christ on that day, you say, I'm so weak. I'm so powerless. How can I do anything to help? And the answer is, you're not the one who's actually doing it. You're just the minister. God's intent on seeing it happen. And if God ever sets out on a mission, he always accomplishes it. He never tries to do something and fails. The beauty of it is that we get to participate in that as his ministers. We let, get to strive with all of our might and energy to work towards that goal alongside Paul, alongside preachers, alongside Christians of all generations, and alongside the omnipotent God who will see the process completed on that day. So may the Lord give us grace to do that for one another. And on that day, uh, the maturity that we bear before Christ might be the result of the work of every minister, every member. All right.